0: Welcome to the Thrive at 20 podcast, where we're celebrating 20 years of Thrive Partnership Group by sitting down with leaders who have helped shape the legacy of the organization. Here's founder Rob Sagan in conversation with one of those leaders today. Good morning, podcast listeners to the Thrive at 20 podcast series. We're very pleased today to be joined by James Dempsey, a proud Canadian boy working and living in Boston in the Bean Town, as the Executive Director of U.S. Commercial Operations at Alexion. a uh, Probably, I guess, James, it'd be safe to say Alexion's now the
1: largest rare disease company in the world. Do you think that's
0: true? You're number cl- one
1: We are close. It is, yeah? it is our goal, and we expect to be there within the next couple of years. Who's bigger than you guys, do you think? Uh, I believe Vertex. Oh, okay. Wow.
0: Yeah, well, you've been on my radar for years as a company. Um, you're canadian uh division reached out to me when they got started gosh it's got to be 13 14 years ago um i I knew the first employee up here a guy named john haslam and gerard fernandez was employee number two and they asked me to come in and start talking them about the way they envisioned the future of lexington to look like in canada and when i went to the office in vaughn those two guys were moving boxes in and they asked me to grab a couple. So <laughs> I think there were three employees in this big open space in Vaughan and they we're helping them get settled in. So, yeah, I've uh, really enjoyed watching you guys expand your footprint and do, do a lot of things extremely well to the point where I guess, was it a couple of years ago now that uh, AstraZeneca saw the same thing that the rest of us were seeing, that it was a really well-run company and decided to make an integration of Alexion into their corporate family. Is, is that about right? About two years?
1: It is about two and a half, July of 2021 is when the, when the deal closed.
0: Okay. And that I'm, I want you to talk a little bit about how that changed the working environment. Um, Cause a few of our listeners are going through that exact situation, uh, especially post COVID. There was a fair amount of rare disease consolidation. Some of the big players got involved. Uh, so Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, especially with you being in the big office in Boston. You know, you can talk a little bit about how it shapes strategy and investment, because certainly that's the bane of the existence of the rare disease companies is they've got to put so much money into the pipeline, into developing these life-saving therapies that it's hard for them to sustain a huge commercial footprint. So it kind of makes sense, just if you're looking at it from a like an MBA case study, that Eventually, if they've got the kind of momentum and success track record that the bigger life science houses would would be a great partner. So, um, so yeah, let's, maybe let's lean into that now. So you've been at the helm of the commercial operations team for a couple of years now as executive director. And I'm really, really uh, happy to see that over the past four years you've been there, which <laughs> coincided pretty much with COVID. You were there about a year with that. All well, that started happening, but you've had a nice steady increase in your responsibility, particularly as the as the integration was going through. So, what did you see around you um, in terms of how the AstraZeneca deal affected the way Alexion goes to market? Um, obviously, I would think that the upside would be the resources and the opportunity for investment dollars being much higher to support commercial success, but. Anything else on the plus side that would be less than obvious to our listeners?
1: Yeah, there were there were a few things. I think, first of all, AstraZeneca was really clear uh, when the deal closed that the way they wanted to operate with Alexion uh, was autonomy with bridges was really the, the catchphrase that they used, meaning they really liked what they saw in Alexion and they thought that Alexion was a well-run company, so they didn't want to interfere with that, um, at least right away. And so they wanted to give Alexion the autonomy to keep operating the way they had been been operating, but build bridges between the two companies where it made sense. And there were were different areas there. There were some products uh, that were sort of exchanged between Alexion and AstraZeneca, um, products that were more of a rare disease type product that were sitting with AstraZeneca moved to Alexion, at the same time, Alexion had a product that was less of a rare disease uh, product, so that moved over to to AstraZeneca as well. So there were things like that that, that were happening. Uh, you mentioned the investment, and that has certainly been a benefit for Alexion on the R&D side as well. Uh, having the the much larger company uh, with AstraZeneca willing to fund a lot of the additional research and, and development in Alexion has been helpful. And I think Beyond that, one of the biggest benefits, and really for our patients as well, was for the opportunity for Alexion to move into markets or significantly increase our presence in markets um, where we had a limited or no presence. Uh, yeah. good example of that is in China, where AstraZeneca has a very, very significant footprint in China. Alexion did not. Uh, with the merger, we've been able to, to work with AstraZeneca to be able to make our products available. Uh, to the the patients in in China, um, as an example, and a lot of other small markets around the world where we had more of a distributor agreement, but now with AstraZeneca's footprint, we've been able to to move in full force um, as well. So I think it's been it's been really good for patients overall.
0: Yeah, now for the employees too, I would think there's been some significant benefit, right? Especially head office and resources and access to talent and. And you've been building a, a team because there's just growing demand in the sector for you know, good analytics and insight and uh, incentive compensation strategy, those sorts of things that are falling under your umbrella are very much in vogue and in demand in the industry. So as you built a growing team, has it helped you in terms of recruiting for candidates to know that there's a a lot of runway and opportunity with the combined companies. Has that been a selling feature, if you will, in recruiting?
1: Um, hopefully it will become more of a selling feature over time. Uh, initially it was a bit of a challenge, uh, especially shortly after the deal closed where potential candidates weren't quite sure how things were going to play out. So was AstraZeneca going to come in and, uh, look for synergies and, and reduce jobs within Alexion. So people were hesitant to right. join Alexion and then potentially be out of a job a few months later. Uh, that has not happened whatsoever. Our commercial ops team, and, and we report into business operations as well, both of, of our groups have continued to expand significantly uh, since the closure. So hopefully those concerns that potential candidates have had maybe over the past couple of years will be waning uh, now. We look at, at it as there's a lot more opportunity now. So when we were just Alexion, your opportunities were within Alexion. Now that we're part of a much larger company as well, there's the opportunity to flow back and forth between AstraZeneca and Alexion as well. So coming to work for Alexion, that also opens the door to a lot of opportunities at, at AstraZeneca uh, and vice versa. So hopefully, uh, going forward, candidates will will see that as an opportunity. Um, the what might temper that a little bit as well is is there's a a fairly significant dis- difference between rare disease and um, more uh, classic big pharma. Yeah, exactly. And and a lot of people want to leave that big pharma to come to rare disease because it operates differently uh, as well. So. We might have fewer people that want to move from Alexion to AstraZeneca. Um, it doesn't mean everybody's going to to be in that boat as well. But for those people who have an open mind and are looking for opportunities and, and want to continue to ad- advance their career, um, there's certainly more opportunity now that we're, we're part of that bigger group as well.
0: Yeah. And I'm starting to see that appear with your Canadian subsidiary, too, with some of the personnel moves that they've made. There's, there's a nice exchange of talent that's happening in the organization. It's just starting. and I, I would expect to see that to continue at the subsidiary and even head office level. So I think it's from the outside looking in, I think it's been a very successful integration and uh, combining of resources and talent, as you say. And hopefully the flow continues because it, it does open up the talent pool and, you know, it is all about talent. It's a war for talent right now um, in almost every sector of the life science uh, industry. There's so much opportunity and growth, and I just can't get over the level of technology that we're now seeing in the healthcare community. Just the it's it's a, it's almost futuristic. Like you told me ten years ago, we'd we'd be at the point of personalized medicine in many cases, especially in oncology or in the case of alexion seeing these kinds of life saving at least quality of life altering uh interventions medications and technology it's just amazing almost like star trek amazing so <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. i want to i want to maybe explore that a little bit with you there's a couple really unique things about your your career path james you know first of all as a expat canadian going to the U.S. head office, Um, some of our colleagues, I did that, and I know a couple dozen folks who have done that, a few of them have been on our podcast series, but I want to talk to you about that decision from a career management point of view, and then I also want to talk to you about, and maybe this is where we should start, you took an unusual path, because from the beginning, like a good chunk of people end up in commercial leadership roles downstream. Um, You started off in sales with Lily back in the 90s in Canada, but not many of your cohort ended up going in the stream you went on the analytics, uh, business insights, and ops. Uh, Most folks end up staying in the sales and marketing product development strategy side of things and find their way sort of up the the chain of command that way. What prompted your decision to specialize on insights and analytics after
1: uh, carrying a bag for a couple of years. So I, I think becoming a sales rep is, is something that had never been on my radar uh, mm-hmm. up until the point where, where the opportunity presented it itself. I, I had actually coming out of business school, I was working at uh, a hospital in, in Richmond Hill, Ontario in, in administration, and administration and spent a few there, years there and was a great learning experience. But uh, one of my classmates, from business school was working at Lily as a sales rep. And our hospital was was part of her territory. So we used to have lunch once in a while and and we'd talk. And and the more I learned about Lily and, and what she was doing, the more interesting it it seemed until one day I I just said, you know, if if you guys are hiring ever, just let me know. because uh, I'd be interested in exploring it. And then it was later that afternoon. She called me and said, Send your resume to this person. I did. Everything kind of worked out. And, and before I knew it, I was a sales rep at, at Lilly. Um, so going into that role, it was something i had never sold anything in my life. I'd never thought that I would have a sales role at any point in my career. <laughs> but I think really what it came down to is is the more I learned about sales and, and what it involved, it, it became clear that whatever skill set I could develop as a as a sales rep, I would be able to use regardless of whether I Became a career wrap, or moved on to to do something else. So I think that's really the 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 lens that I was looking at uh, moving into the sales role. And and looking back, I'm I'm really glad that I made that decision. It it was definitely outside of my comfort zone, uh, but I think that the things that I learned um, in sales in the time that that I was doing that uh, still benefit me to this day. Yeah, and I, I, I think you know on one side it's really helpful to in the role that I'm in now to understand what is a typical day, like for a salesperson, what do those interactions with our customers look like? You know, what are their challenges? What are their struggles? Um, That is something that it certainly helps me understand. when we're working on incentive compensation plans, when we're trying to determine what are the appropriate metrics uh, to be looking at uh, from a Salesforce effectiveness perspective uh, from a deployment perspective, when we're looking at what do we want to consider when we're when we're building and sizing territories, as well. So having that experience certainly helps in everything that that I'm doing now. And I think just in, in terms of my my natural skill set was more on the quantitative side as well. Yeah. So moving into market research, analytics, forecasting, that type of thing really gave me the opportunity to to leverage more of my natural skills, things that I was good at, but then leaning on the experience that I had on the commercial side in the field as a sales rep has really been a, a nice marriage of experiences and, and skills. And for me, it's it's just worked. Um, things make a lot more sense to me, uh, having experienced both sides and, and being able to, to leverage both sides. And so it might seem a little bit odd at first, Uh, But for me, it's something that I would really encourage anybody uh, who wants to be more on the analytics side as well to at some point in their career, have that experience in the field and and understand uh, what does a day in the life of a a sales rep really look like?
0: Well, and it goes to the logic that when you look at the marketing mix of the majority, the vast majority of life science companies in pharma, biotech, med device, etc., you know, unlike other categories like packaged goods, consumer products, those sorts of things, or B2B, um, you know, I was a marketing guy and 80% of the spend is in direct selling. Uh, so if you're going to be good at the business, you got to understand how that component of the marketing mix works. It's the same. I remember a few years into my pharma career, I was interviewing with an over the counter uh, drug company that had the the rights to Anacin, which was a competitor for aspirin. And when I was interviewing with the director of marketing, he said, you know, if you're going to get good at this game, because you came from are coming from life science over to the OTC or over the counter sort of consumer healthcare products field, you're going to have to understand how media works because it drives our marketing mix. So it, it, it just makes so much sense. And again, I'm glad you brought that up because our younger listeners who are looking at plotting themselves out a, A challenging and interesting career path will sometimes scoff at the idea, particularly if they've got a really good education coming into the industry and think, you know, feel like perhaps they're immediately ready for uh, management type roles. And sometimes they are, I think, at the product management level, but leading people and being able to bring a lot of wisdom as they carry that forward, especially if they have to take on a lot of people leadership. I couldn't agree with you more, James. I think that grounding in the sales representative position. It is so informative to a ton of roles at the top of the organizations like, uh, Lexion. Like so, but I'm curious, when you were sitting in the middle of your MBA at McMaster and you have a undergrad at McGill in, in science too. So you think about those formative years in the midst of your academic education, what did you picture doing? Like what was, if someone asked you, well, what do you think you're going to be doing, you know, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, as you're about five years into your career, what would your advances have been at that time?
1: It would have been general. I think I, I knew that I wanted to be involved in the health industry, uh, for sure. It was something that, that, um, that was always important to me. Um, for a lot of my life growing up, I wanted to be a doctor. And so that's the way that I had kind of naturally leaned. That's what brought me into to science in my, my undergrad as well and then when i got into the the mba program as well for me that was the the perfect mix of learning the business side and then being able to to leverage the science piece as well and ultimately the the pharma industry is a a perfect fit i think for for that skill set um, as well so i i knew that i wanted to be in the health industry i wouldn't have been able to tell you exactly what role i would be in because to be honest, most of the roles that I've held in my career, I didn't even know they existed when I was still in the university.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I can uh, relate to that comment. Okay, so your couple of years with Lily, and you know, we've had a couple of other guests who benefited from the sort of talent incubator that Lily was around the world, but particularly in the U.S. and Canada, there's just some really strong mentors that were part of that organization when, when you joined. But tell me, how did you move from the territory responsibilities into market research? Because that that in and of itself is an unusual move. I've seen lots of folks go in to the office in associate product management type roles or project management roles, or but to go directly from sales into market research, somebody must have seen something special in you and took a little bit of a flyer to, to bring you in. I'm sure the MBA helped, but... Was there someone there that really pushed you forward and gave you a chance to get in on the analytics side that quickly?
1: I think it was in part of my district sales manager um, was very supportive of that and, and backing up a little bit, certainly at the time, and, and it may still be the case, Lily's philosophy was we hire for a career not for a job. Right. So although they were hiring me as a, a sales rep, they didn't put me in that box to say, Okay. This is what we're hiring for. As long as you're working for us, you're going to be a sales rep. So Lily was really, really big about moving people through the sales organization um, into the office as as people wanted and, and assuming that they had the skill set. So working for a company that was open to that was certainly helpful, uh, where a lot of people started out in sales and then moved into, as you say, whether it was product management, market research, finance, whatever the case may be. Um, so I think I found myself in the right in, environment uh, for a company that supported that and then while I was in sales and, and getting to know the different roles that that were available in head office and learning more about the different roles market research was really the area that that was most interesting to me and you know at the time it was the primary market research piece it was the secondary research or the analytics and then forecasting was was also part of that so again um, really quantitative and and really something that that interested me. So I got to know people who were in those roles more. Um, I was fortunate enough, I, I got to have a, a ride along day with uh, the person who was managing that group um, to get to know her and, and ask her questions about the role of get allow her to, to get to know me a little bit better as well. So that when the opportunity presented itself, um, at least I was a known quantity uh, to the hiring manager from there. And, um, as I say, I had, had support from my, my district sales manager as well. And um, I was just lucky enough that, that Lily gave me the opportunity. It was helpful for me that one of the products that that I would be supporting in the market research role was one of the products that I was selling. So I already had that clinical and commercial understanding of the product, which really helped me with the, the transition as well. And you know, companies like Lilly, like AstraZeneca, that are large companies, lots of training, lots of resources, yeah. really made it an easy transition uh from the field into the office.
0: You, you know, you probably couldn't have landed at a better company at that time in terms of someone like you say, they saw talent and they were wanting to invest in you for you know more than just the short term. Uh, listen, a lot of a lot of the life science companies. Then and now, there's still a unfortunate tendency to just hire for the job, but not really have much attention in the medium and long term terms of talent development and onboarding. They say that, but you know, I don't see much evidence of it. But in this case, you know, I've heard it enough from other folks too that, boy, did you end up at the right place at the right time? What what else did you take away from those seven or so foundational years at Eli Lilly in the in their Canadian subsidiary? What were the lessons and the insights that you gathered in those seven years that allowed you to have so much success afterwards?
1: I think it was a lot of things. Um, you know, as I say, I was able to to work in a number of different roles at Lilly and develop different skills and different skill sets. And at the time that that I moved on from Lilly, I, I was leading their um Commercial ops uh, type team as well. So I'd gone from sales, moved into the market research role, and and then was able to lead that team um, at some point in my career. So it was kind of a steady progression, learning more um, about different areas of the business as I moved on. But I think one of the big things, or one of the biggest insights that I took away was was actually after I had given my my resignation at Lilly, and. Before I left, the the person who's the the general manager at the time called me into his office and and we had a, a really good conversation. And and one of the things that, that he said really stuck with me because when I was leaving Lilly, I was moving to Gilead Sciences, which is really just at the point where they were opening up their Canadian office. Yep. They had, had a, a sales force in place for a couple of years, and now they were building out the, the office functions as well. And and one of the things that the GM said to me was. You know, I really hope that you'll be able to take the discipline that you've learned in a large organization like Lilly and be able to apply that to an up and coming biotech where you're not going to have a lot of structure in place. And for me, that's really something that, that stuck with me in the, the different roles. And, and it was incredibly true um, as well. I walked into to a role at, at Gilead and it was actually, um, you know, half uh, finance role and, and half of a commercial operations type role as well. And there was really very little in place when I got there. So I had the opportunity to to build up those functions, um, but was able to lean really heavily on what I had learned at the previous seven years at Lilly in order to help um, establish those those functions in Canada.
0: Yeah, now listen, I know you're a very thoughtful person, James. I, I can't imagine you doing much on a whim, So can you take us inside your thinking back at the time you made that move from, you know, what would be categorized as big pharma over to an emerging life science company like Gilead that was specialty pharma, almost rare disease-ish in its its portfolio and its approach. So that's a bold move, Um, you know, that juncture seven years into your career. What was the motivation? What was the strategy
1: for you? I think it was really to, to try something different, uh, to continue to learn and, and learn new skills. At, at the time, Lilly wasn't involved in rare disease um, as well. So there were more uh, general medicine, specialty, oncology-type uh, products at, at Lilly. And I felt that I had a, a really good run and, and good experience in the general medicine and, and the specialty-type products as well. Um, and in, in talking to people... Um, as well, it, it became clear that that sort of the not necessarily rare disease, but the, the therapeutic areas that Gilead was involved at the the time with HIV uh, was the big one, um, was a huge market, especially at at that time as well, and and just the opportunity to to leverage the skill set that I had been able to build while continuing to build new skills and applying the skills to a new therapeutic area and a a new way of of doing business as well. Um that was part of the the motivation for for looking at a company like like Gilead. And then what really sealed the deal for me was was going through the interview process and and meeting some of the people on the the Gilead team. It was just uh an amazing group of of people uh that worked together so well. The culture was was incredible. It was just one of those roles where i get up in the morning and just really be excited uh, to get into work and, and, um, and see what we could accomplish that, that day with the team. So very different experience going to an office of, you know, maybe 15 people uh, yeah. from an office of hundreds of people. Uh, yeah,
0: the- yeah. What um, do you think that they did well as they were building that footprint in Canada to create a good culture? Did you, I know you're a student of the game of business and those sorts of things fascinate you. So if you look back now, you know, if you were going to start a, a pharmaceutical company or a life science company, let's say in a country like Canada, what would you repeat that you saw at Gilead in their Canadian subsidiary as they built it up?
1: I think, I think it's interesting. The, I mentioned before that, that when I left Lily uh, in the conversation about, being advised to, to leverage the discipline that I picked up at, at Lilly to this new environment. And at Gilead, especially at the time where we're just building up the office, we're building up the functions as well. Um, it was very much an entrepreneurial type mindset. So there wasn't a lot of process in place. So if you wanted something done, if you needed a decision made, you just walked over to the office of, of the, the person who you needed to consult with or, or the people that you needed to consult with as well. You had a conversation, you made a decision, and you moved on. Mm. So it was really refreshing that way, especially in in the early days as, as to how efficient you could be in terms of making decisions and, and implementing those quickly. I think certainly, as as that business grew and as any business grows, you need to introduce more process and things need to be repeatable, and you need to to make sure that that everything is is on the the straight, narrow sort of so to speak. But I think in the early days of it being very open, very fluid, it was just a a really interesting environment to be part of. And I'd never been part of a a group that was able to make decisions that quickly and implement the decisions uh, that quickly as well. So I think that's one thing that that really helped build up the culture. And then once that culture was established, as it became important to establish more process, we were still able to to maintain that mindset and maintain that culture um, as well. And it was also a, a group that stuck together. I think I was there for a little bit over four years and I believe I was the first one to leave voluntarily, um, after, after those four years as well. So it was a very, very close knit team, uh, and a very difficult decision for, for me to make, to leave that group and, uh, a company in a, in a role that I really, really enjoyed.
0: Yeah. But you did make a jump back over to, again, the more general pharmaceutical space with Novo Nordis with their Canadian, uh, offices. And that was, a. Uh... Fun time at Nova Nordis. They were going through lots of growth, and every time I would go through the front door, I'd 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 have to ask who's new, what's new, because they always seem to be hiring and building up a lot of infrastructure. But those half dozen years that you were at Nova Nordis Canada, they were they were thriving and growing, and it must have been fun to be over there too. Was was their growth trajectory? Was their pipeline one of the big reasons why you you took took a a few jobs there before uh, before moving into uh, rare
1: disease. Not really. It, it was actually more. It was interesting as as I mentioned when I left Lilly, I was leading the the sales ops and, and market research team as well, and it was a, a group of about ten people. So it really gave me some good experience on on the people leadership side. Yeah. When I moved over to Gilead, I was in a single contributor role. Um, so it was was very different. Um, from that, and, and as much as I I really enjoyed that, it had only been a little bit over a year, a little bit more than a year uh, that I had on the on the people leadership side at Lilly, and it was something that I think I was well enough into to my career. I guess I was about eleven years into pharma at that point, and needed to start thinking more longer term and about what I wanted to do and the types of roles that I wanted to have as well. And the opportunity came up at at Novo Nordisk to um, lead a a good sized team as well mm-hmm. in the, the commercial operations space with the different functions within that. So I think on paper, it was, you know, almost a no brainer um, from a career progression uh, perspective. It was a promotion. It was to a higher level. It was to be leading a large team um, and moving on from there. And, you know, as I said, even though it was Made so much sense on paper. It was really difficult to to leave a company, leave a company in a and a job that I really enjoyed at, at Gilead. But ultimately, um, I think the process took about six months uh, from start to finish before I finally made the decision to to move to to Novo Nordisk. So really, it was about the opportunity to to lead people, to continue to develop those skills, and to really understand whether or not it was a strength of mine. Um, if it was then something that I would want to continue moving forward. If I decided that, you know what, I'm okay at this or not very good at this, then I would know, okay, maybe I need to, to start looking again at, at more the single contributor roles or um, leading small teams of people as well. So it was really a, a developmental opportunity that, yeah, that drove I, me there.
0: And I, and I appreciate, you know, I hear this uh, and see this in my travels too, is that the folks who end up, you know, running big teams, uh, they have to have the courage to, to uh, push themselves into the deep end of the pool, so to speak. And it was a per- there's a perfect example of that your move over to over Nordisk, because that is a challenging uh, step up. And it's one of those you can read about it. You can watch people do it well. You can have mentors, but there's just nothing like, you know, diving into those choppy waters yourself. and taking the helm of a pretty sizable team, which you did there at Novo Nordis. So what is it about people leadership that appeals to you and still to this day appeals to you? Cause you've got a, a group of almost 30 folks there at the U S office of Alexion. So that's a large footprint. That's a lot of folks and a lot of highly educated, high impact folks as well. But what has been the appeal for you when it comes to leading uh, and, and making an impact through others?
1: I think it's for me it's it's really the excitement and, and the satisfaction from being part of people's development. Um, so contributing to their growth in their role, their growth into new roles as well. For me, it's it, it's almost like being a parent when you're just you're so proud of your team, when you see them grow, when you see them develop and and you see them move on to to bigger and better things. Um, you know, best case scenario is when there's enough runway and, and opportunity and your current organization to to see people grow to be able to promote them to have other people promote them to to different areas of the organization, um, but there have been other people uh, as well as as part of my team where the opportunities at the existing company weren't necessarily there, and they were able to find those opportunities at at other organizations and as. As disappointing as it is to to lose them from your team and your company, there's still that excitement and and really that happiness for them uh, when they're able to find the right opportunity that's going to allow them to flourish and allow them to to continue to to develop in their their career as well. So for me, it's really all about the people and and their development. Um that gets me excited even more so than than the strategy uh piece as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I'm I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, when we talk to folks who have those kinds of responsibilities, why they enjoy it, we get quite a range of answers. And I, I really want to unpack this uh, human gardener concept with you because it's what floats my boat. Maybe that's why you and I um, work so well together. It's that, you know, we both got that motivation, if you will. So. For you, what have you found are some of the methods that you've learned in the last several years with that mindset of talent development and you know, being someone who helps people realize more of their potential? What are the tricks of the trade, James, that you've learned over those several years now of running
1: big teams in this space? I think number one for me is, is just making sure that I'm accessible. To the team as well especially as, as the team grows and as we have multiple levels within the, within the team um you know from my perspective although we have different roles different levels we're all we are all one team and so for me it's important for every member of the team to understand that, that they have access to me whenever they want uh, whether it's through regular one-on-one meetings or, or whether it's more ad hoc meetings as well so that's the first step for me uh, beyond that, in terms of, of trying to to push the team and, and trying to help the team develop, um, a big component for me is is to resist the urge to provide answers because when you ask the right questions, I think you find that people have the answers, whether they know they have the answer or not. Um so really trying to to help team members as they 're dealing with challenges as they're they're looking at different situations and different options, helping them think through that and coming to the decision themselves in terms of what is the right path for them to to follow or, or what is the the right option um as well and there was you know one question that that I picked up and I think it was in a, a training program as well, and the facilitator of the The training was very good at this when she would ask a question to the group or to an individual. Oftentimes, somebody would answer with, I don't know. And so rather than let them off the hook, the follow-up question was, if you did know, what would the answer be? (laughs) And I have found that to be an incredibly powerful question uh, to ask people as well, because it's really easy if the answer doesn't come to you right away just to say, I don't know and then wait for someone to give you the answer. But when you put it back on their plate and make it clear that you're not gonna accept, I don't know, um, it really forces people to think. And the more they think, um, they find they're able to come up with, with the answer. And then we can discuss you know, the answer back and forth from there. But for me, that's just a, a really powerful tool because I think people have a lot more p- potential and a lot more capability than they give themselves credit for. And sometimes they just need that little push or that permission um, to take a risk or, or to, to surface ideas that, you know, maybe it's in the back of their mind, but they might not have a lot of confidence in.
0: Yeah. Now I, I want to come back to this. Cause I think it's such a fundamentally important concept, but funny little anecdote. When we moved to California, my wife and I would go to retail stores, like the grocery store down the street. And I remember the, the trick for the workers there to not have to to engage much or work much was just to, when you said, you know, where, where do you guys keep the broccoli? You know, they'd say, I have no idea. And then they just look at you and they thought, well, you, you've got no comeback to that. Like, what, what can I do with that? I wish I'd known that question. I could have said, well, if you did have an idea, where would it be? <laughs> yeah. It was their way of saying, bugger off, you know, I'm lazy, you know, I'm a 16-year-old kid, I don't feel like helping you <laughs> get out of the store. <laughs> um, but seriously, back to the human development concept, I really like that concept, I really like that construct of the Socratic uh, methodology of coaching, right, the Socrates was famous for asking questions and his commitment to having his students think at a higher level as opposed to giving them the answers was, was the foundation of that. And I, my mentor, Sheldon was, was someone we, many of us at Allergan enjoyed for that very reason. His most common expression was sweetheart, help me understand that, you know, or help me understand something. And you just knew, oh, okay, this is going to be, <laughs> this is going to be a, an interesting conversation because he, he knew the answer, but he, he was trying to figure out if you knew the answer and you would always We would always leave his one-on-ones, which we called the slap room. kind of in a very uh, sarcastic way, but it was because, man, you came out of there, you were tired, your brain hurt because he just didn't let you off the hook easy. You couldn't throw your monkeys on his back. It was like, no, no, no. You're going to think your way through this, son, (laughs) and I'm going to watch you squirm. But it was really good for our development. It was probably why of all the people that I worked for in the industry those 20 years, he stands out because he did exactly that. You grew just because he didn't give you any choice. Um, So that methodology for developing people, what has it done in terms of your folks, the people who've reported to you over the years, and their ability to also own their own journey, their own professional development journey? Do you think it's helped with that? Because I've observed that with folks that have reported into your groups, is that they seem to be, they, you know, they. I wouldn't say ambitious is the only word I would use to describe, but they seem to have a clear idea of where they're going, why they're going there, what what they need to do to continue to build skills, probably more so than just about any team that I've worked with for as long as I work with your groups. Is that where that comes from, that you also want to see that they own their their path and not just the challenge or dilemma that they're bringing into your office that day? Is that where that comes from?
1: Definitely, it is, and, and certainly at, at Alexion, and, and probably at most, if not all, companies, the philosophy is that the employee owns their development plan. Their manager, their leaders, are there to support them in the actualization of that plan, removing barriers and, and helping them to get there as well. So, you know, as a, a leader, I can't tell somebody what should be next from from a career development perspective. I'm happy to have those conversations. Try to understand where do their interests lie. I can provide feedback on where I think their skill sets are, where there are are gaps. So if this is the role, if you're you're currently in a sales ops role and you're really interested in a market access role, so to speak, we can talk about okay, well, what what's the skill set required for that role that you're interested in? What are the gaps, and how do we help you close those gaps so that when those opportunities present themselves, you're going to be a strong. Candidate for the role, um, so I think that that there's a role for me to play in in supporting the team that way. But in terms of understanding what they're interested in and and where they want to go, uh, for me, that's really up to the the individual to to make those decisions. Um, and again, happy to help with the the conversations that will help them get there. Um, but it's something that's got to come from the individual themselves.
0: Yeah, but that methodology james that philosophy and the way that you execute that to me is a best practice because you and i see other approaches and they don't normally work very well a lot of people leaders either overplay their hand and they go from being stewards and advisors maybe navigators to uh directing the traffic you know like you need to go here you need to get this experience and then you need to go over there and they're very didactic and i think that was a very common model when I joined the industry back in the mid 80s was there still that sort of command and control mindset above me with the with the more experienced managers that were were part of the industry at that time. They they kind of told you where to go and why you would go there and who you would learn from and what your takeaways were going to be and they mapped everything out as if you were a little widget on a production line. And then the other extreme is bosses who frankly don't care like it's not on their radar. <laughs> You look after yourself, you know, if, if you really bug them, they might help, but they probably wouldn't. So I really like that. What you're looking at here is very strategic, but it's appropriate. Like it's not overplaying the hand. It's the, listen, you own your journey here. Tell me what what your goals are and why you want to go there and I'll pressure test your thinking to make sure you're looking at things the right way. But once you make the decision, especially why you might have an aspiration, then Like the way you said that, that then your job as the person's leader, if you will, and developing them as a, you know, a talent, maybe a high potential talent, is to give them some options, some things to think about, some people to go talk to and open their minds. So that probably explains why folks that I know that have uh, worked on your teams have really appreciated the growth that they've seen for themselves from a skill set perspective, but also from a career development like that they've mapped out they have a pretty good sense of where this is going and they seem to really appreciate you, you know your guidance and your navigational skills if you will what have what have been some of your most satisfying successes you do know, not to name names but can you think of some particularly rewarding experiences you've had in the dozen or so years you've been leading people
1: yeah, I think it's it, it's really you know people who earn promotions within the team um, get promoted to uh, to other teams or um, probably I think one of the biggest successes that that I would would call was was at Alex Young where we had somebody on our team as well, just incredibly bright, incredibly hardworking, um, huge potential as well. Um, got to the point. in in his career where he had really done everything that he could do uh, in his current role. There was nothing else on the horizon um, here that, that made sense and and that was really going to help him accelerate his, his development. Um, But an opportunity came up outside uh, to really build up a, a comm ops uh, type function as, as well. And, and, you know, he, he ended up taking that role. So it was really you know, sad for us to to lose a talent like that, but really, really satisfying um, as a as a leader to see somebody make that jump into a role um, where it was clear he was he was ready for it and he was going to thrive um, as well. So I think that's probably my one of the biggest successes that I've had um, in terms of people leaving the team to to go elsewhere. Um, beyond that, even in in twenty twenty three, uh, we had a lot of movement with on our team and we were able to promote a number of people um, into new roles and move some people into to lateral roles for development opportunities as well and so we had a lot of churn on the the team in, in 2023 and a lot of people doing multiple roles to still cover the the role that they left while we're trying to hire a new person into that role as well but just to to see the opportunities that the people had as a result of those, those promotions and, and seeing them thrive, being in the new roles is, is something that's really satisfying.
0: Yeah, I'll bet. Now, I would also bet that over the course of your career, you've had ex-colleagues, especially folks that you were mentoring, stay in touch. Have you, have you found that, that they'll go out of their way to check in with you
1: and for you to keep tabs on them? Is that something you enjoy doing? For sure. And, and there have been a few people um, that they have kept in touch with from a, a mentoring uh, type relationship. And, you know, on occasion, they'll call if they're considering new opportunities or, or different challenges and, and just to use me as a sounding board to, to get my perspective as well. Um, you know, for me, that that's something that I find really rewarding that if people found enough value in me when I was their their manager to to want to continue that that relationship in, in some form, even when uh, we've gone off to uh, to different organizations, to me that that gives me a good feeling and and that feeling that I have made an impact on on that person's career and, and have added value um to them and, and their development.
0: Yeah. Now the other bold move that you've made that many of our Canadian colleagues consider at some point in their career, especially if they're upperly mobile have some ambition is do I leave the relatively small domestic Canadian life science market and move into either say a global role could be something in Europe or Asia or to a head office role. And that's often to the U S not always, but often you that's a big move. And it's a, it's a challenging move just to be able to, well, you know, somebody said to me at one point, it's a little bit like going in the you know from minor league baseball to the big leagues, you know, <laughs> and it, and I got to say that my experience was that's exactly what it felt like. Is as challenging as commercial leadership is in life science in Canada. Becoming a life science leader in the biggest and most competitive market in the world is like going to the major leagues. Everything is quicker. Everything is more challenging. The talent is is uh, off the charts. Good and boy, you got to stay sharp to compete. But for you, you know, James, that decision would not have been an easy one because you were on a pretty good roll. You had lots of responsibility with the Lexion Canada at the time as they were growing. And, uh, you know, a couple of kids who were, I guess, finishing high school, university days. So take take us through that decision and why make that bold move at that point in your career?
1: Yeah, and that... That one's interesting. Um, moving to the U.S. or or to a, a company's global head office had not been on my radar. Um, my wife and I were were really committed to providing that kind of stable environment for our kids as as they were growing up, and you know we were never prepared to to move anywhere uh, while the kids were growing up and, and going through elementary school and, and high school uh, that would cause them to have to switch schools you know, switch, meet different friends and, and things like that. Both my wife and I had, had grown up in the same house. Um, well, obviously different houses, but, um, you know, my parents are, are still in the house that I grew up in 50 years later, uh, so to speak. So that was just the environment that both my wife and I had grown up in. We wanted to provide that for our kids as well. So from a career perspective, my focus was all on local uh, roles at the Canadian affiliates within Toronto, or Mississauga um, and so not something that had been on my radar uh, to move, you know, out of Toronto, let alone out of the country. And it was interesting. It was literally the day after our son's high school graduation, and our general manager at Alexion Canada at the time had called me into his office, and we we're just having a conversation, and and he asked the question, "Are you geographically mobile?" and you know, kind of stopped me in my tracks and I said, you know, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, would you consider moving to the U S or, or moving to Zurich at the time? Canada was reporting to our international group that was based in, in Zurich. And so I said, you know, I honestly, it's not something that, that we've given a lot of thought to. If you had asked me before yesterday, the answer would have been no. Um, but given that our, our youngest just graduated from high school, Yesterday, he's going to be going away to, to university in September. Our daughter, who's a couple of years ahead, was already away at university. I said, you know, let me let me think about it. Let me talk to my wife. So I kind of walked away from that meeting with a lot of questions in my mind. Um, I think it was just before the the July long weekend in in Canada. And so that that weekend, I sort of broached the, the topic with my wife and and just say you know what do you think at the time we weren't sure it was um you know she asked the same questions where would it be and I said well I guess either Boston or or Zurich um and we we thought okay it's interesting it, it might be the right time in our life to do it now that our kids will, will both be away at school and they're going to be independent you know we we give them more thought and decided you know Zurich might be pushing it a little bit um it's a much longer flight than boston which is you know an hour and a half flight we can be home same day if the kids need us or it's a you know nine hour drive plus or minus to uh to get home to toronto so we thought you know boston is away but it's still close enough that our, if our kids need us we can be there quickly um you know we we looked at the the stage that our kids were at and you know we were both really you know proud of the kids and and happy with the maturity level that they had for for their age. Um, we believed that they were at a point where you know we felt they would be able to handle it so a lot of those discussions went on um eventually when we got to the point where this is something we we want to seriously consider. you know we brought it up with the kids to to see if they had any concerns and um, you know they didn't voice any at the time, although they probably you know, knew even less about what it would entail than, than we did at the time. Uh, so ultimately we decided that, you know, we're going to give it a shot. Uh, we'll, we'll treat it as an adventure. We might be back to to Canada in six months, or, you know, we might end up in the U.S. for an extended period of time, which is what the cases ended up being. Um, you know, I think it, it's been a really good experience overall. We love Boston. We love exploring up and down the, uh, the North Shore, South Shore, as well, you know, as you brought up at the beginning of the call, one of the wrenches that got thrown into the plan was was COVID hit in, yeah. in February, March of of twenty twenty. Um, I think I moved here in the fall of twenty eighteen. My wife spent the first year going back and forth, and then spent that first summer uh, with the kids as well when they were back home from school. And then she moved to Boston in the fall of twenty nineteen. So she was really only here for a few months before COVID hit. Um and that was a a real reality check when all of a sudden we were it wasn't so easy uh to get home to see the kids or or to bring the kids down here or at the time if you were gonna cross the border you had a two two week quarantine period um you had to go through and then you could have your visit and then come back to the u s and it was either ten days or or two weeks as well so it was a big deal uh to be able to to get back and and see the kids uh, when we wanted to. And and that certainly tested us.
0: Yeah. And then there's also the extended families too, where you're trying to see parents and trying to stay in touch with family events. And wow. Yeah, that was, uh, that was an unpredictable (laughs) 800 pound gorilla. You know, it's funny in business. And I think you and I've had this conversation a couple of times from, from a strategy point of view, we know there's going to be, unforeseen challenges and obstacles to whatever plans we we think we we lay down and we can think we could predict the future but invariably something happens like a new competitor emerges on the horizon a product goes on back order there's an fda issue i mean there's always something around the corner right that you can't anticipate that's going to test you whether it's from a commercial strategy point of view or a personal point of view covid was certainly that, that for most people, but in your case, really to an extreme, right? Where who could have seen that one coming? And then all of a sudden, you guys had to figure out how to deal with it. So, looking back, what do you feel like you guys did well as a family to manage through that unforeseen, you know, big challenge that that emerged?
1: It's a it's a good question, and and I think we probably didn't do everything perfectly um, as well. Certainly. You know, having FaceTime and and Zoom calls uh, was important, and you know, for us and, and my wife especially, when we're talking to the kids, when we're separated from them, and it really started when our daughter went away to school as well. Is when we have those conversations, we want to be able to see their face um, as well. Yeah. It's one thing for them to be on the other end of the phone saying, "Yep, yeah, I'm good, everything's fine." you know it's different when it's that that face to face conversation so i think you know leveraging the technology that was available was was important to us and and it was helpful um i think being open to my wife spending extended periods of time uh back in toronto uh when the kids needed her uh was something that that was really important to us and we knew that it was a um you know a decision that that we made as a couple and and as a family where you know it's hard for for my wife and and I to be apart from each other for a couple months but at the same time if if that's what's right for our family overall then that that's what we're going to do and i think that we've done a a pretty good job over the last 5 years of of doing that is when you know we felt it was important um for our family and for the kids to have at least one of their parents um, there with them for an extended period of time. We've been able to, to make that work. Um, I think, you know, hopefully one of the, the positive benefits and in, in time will tell is, you know, that separation and, and going through COVID really forced, I think the kids to a certain degree to accelerate adulting, uh, so to speak. And I think that they had to, to grow up a little faster than they would have otherwise had to do. Uh, had my wife and I been at home, and and all four of us being in the same house, um, going through COVID. So, you know, again, we're we're really proud of our kids and in the way they were able to to navigate those challenges. Um, I'm hopeful that it, it it hasn't put too much stress on them or or caused any long term damage, um, so to speak. And and I'm hoping that coming through the experience, that you know, they'll find that they're stronger. Uh, people, they have more confidence in, in their ability., uh, they're more willing to to take on challenges, more willing to take on new adventures as well. Um, so I'm hoping that that's going to be a benefit of of some of the challenges that that we've gone through um, as well. And you know, if that's not the case and it's the opposite, then you know, I, I know that that's on me and and looking back then maybe coming down wasn't the right decision for for the family. So I think um again, Time will tell on that one. I'm I'm hopeful that all of us will will be better. Uh, for my wife and I, taking advantage of the opportunity that that we had to to chase this adventure um, from a personal side and from a, a professional development side um, as well. But you know, we we continue to learn um, as we go forward, and and we just you know constantly try to to do things better to to make the situation better for our, our family as a whole.
0: Yeah, and you know it's interesting that you use that ex- expression continue to learn because i actually look at your brand as a leader and i try to do this for all of our guests on the call because you all have a distinctive a sort of a essential skill or angle to your leadership i think that's yours i think your appetite for learning is off the charts you, you you're not afraid to push yourself into new challenges in a very thoughtful way you're not a gambler but you're not unwilling to measure the situation uh, with your, you know, your analytically inclined brain, but then go for it. Like not not suffer from analysis paralysis. Kind of look at it and go, yeah, why not? The pluses are greater than the minuses, and let's make an adventure out of this. So that that's a that's a a skill set or a mindset that I think has served you well in that regard. What's the biggest success you think you've had in your career to this point and why do you think that uh it's it goes to the top of the list
1: it's a good question i i think for me my my knee-jerk answer to that question is is really getting to the point that i'm at now um when i just look at the the progression that i've had uh, throughout my career you know earlier on in my career the idea was to to really build the base of the pyramid as well, try to get as many different experiences and in different organizations, different roles, um, seeing the business in different contexts to one, learn from it and and two, understand, you know, what am I good at and what do I really enjoy to help me sort of narrow in um, or progress through the funnel uh, from a career perspective to to identify really, where do I want to be in my career? And um, so I think where I'm at now is is a place that, that I'm really, really happy with. Um, I certainly didn't get here on my own. If I look back throughout my career, um, too many people to name that that have given the opportunities um, to develop and, and to grow um, as well. And I think it was really a two-way street in that I'm grateful to to the people who gave me those opportunities and I was willing to to put in the work on my end and and try to continue to to develop where it was you know to let the person who gave me the opportunity know that it was absolutely the the right opportunity and I was able to move into that role and develop in that role and then continue to to move on as well so I think for me it the biggest success is is really um Career progression, but from a a personal level, really looking at being able to continually develop new skills, continually learn and and get better at what I'm doing. Um, and I know I'm I'm certainly not perfect in in the role that I'm in at the moment, and and continue to to work on developing strengths and, and addressing gaps as well, and and really enjoy that challenge. Um, but again, just really happy with the way my career has, has played out to this point.
0: Yeah, but even in this uh, progression that you see uh, in your career and moving down to the big leagues that is the United States and the headquarter environment, and now you've been bumped up a couple times and you're leading a big team and you're managing managers. A lot of them are extremely bright people with you know lots of runway in their careers. So you're, you know, you've strapped it on, but even now, I see a commitment to pushing yourself to be as good as you can, even at this level. What are a couple of things that you do you're doing now, James, to continue to sharpen your saw as a leader?
1: I think one of the big things is that, that we've been working on um, as a team and and we still have a way to go, but, um, you know, we're seeing progress there. And I think it's really the idea of that internal consulting um as well it 's really easy, especially in busy organizations for the team to just be constantly doing two things one is is developing and and publishing reports and the other is just answering questions from the business as they come up. but when you're doing that, you find that that your team they're almost like hamsters on the wheel, just you know running so quickly and 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 not being able to to move forward and so really what we 're We're trying to get to the point where we can deliver to the business what the business needs before the business realizes that they need it. So that's our our aspirational goal as a team. I think the way to get there is to continue to develop our skills as, as internal consultants. And, you know, it's a challenge because we still need to be producing all the reports that the organization expects. We still need to be there to answer the questions that they have but in the meantime we're trying to carve out capacity in order to really dig deep and understand you know what really are the business objectives for our business partners you know what's their ideal state how do we help them to get there and then really focus on okay if we understand where the business wants to go and what's most important for the business how do we deliver value uh, to them, that's going to help get them there faster. And I think the hope is that when we are able to provide those insights and those solutions before the the business really identifies them as a need, hopefully that's going to reduce a lot of the questions and the ad hoc um, analyses that the team is doing to react. And when they're doing that, you know, answering those questions often we don't have enough time or don't take the time to understand the questions that the business is asking of us. Are those the right questions? If I answer that question, is it going to give them the information they need to make the decision or to impact the strategy um, as well? So I think one of the big challenges that we're going through is is trying to get off that hamster wheel, trying to be a lot more proactive and trying to be really true business partners to consult with the business uh, to provide value Uh, beyond just what the business expects of us or just what the business is asking of us.
0: Yeah, and I really like that progressive approach because many of our listeners are, I'm sure, uh, either currently or have worked in functions where they're supporting, let's say, a a key commercial division or department, or even in your case, cross-functionally, all of the major commercial organization, uh, not only in the US, but as a, thought leader for the rest of the world to follow so it's a common concern um you see it i just was working with a finance team uh before the holidays a large finance team and they had that same opportunity that they could see where if they just played a passive role you know they'd be at the end of the tail at the end of the dog just answering endless requests uh almost brain numbing repetitive requests. But if and they noticed this in the 2023 year that they were able to fulfill the fundamentals that were part of their business challenge, but start to create some capacity to do some really interesting strategic work on the financial side, and they use that same expression, you know, we got to do a better job of being internal consultants to the commercial engines of this of the organization, and and really understand where they're going, why they're going there, and be able to help them anticipate those challenges and give them thoughtful guidance on decisions they're going to have to make before they even know they have to make them. And they just got some nice feedback from the, the the big bosses that they uh, stood out in a positive way to the organization and made a couple of recommendations that uh, others couldn't see the, the need for, but now it's really come home to roost. So well, I really like the way you frame that—the internal consulting piece and sharpening your saw there, James, as the team leader in COMOPS, but also encouraging your people to do the same. That's a that's a that's a really good strategy. Thanks for sharing that. What about for you personally, in terms of not only adding that internal consulting capability and sharpening that part of the saw, but anything else that you're doing to? Ensure your self awareness that you continue to thrive as a people leader, as a developer of talent. Uh, what are you doing that maybe our listeners could benefit from?
1: Yeah, so I think, and you know, I'll go back to to some of the things that that we're working on with you, um, as well as as part of your thrive business. And I I think it's the the feedback piece as well. So recently with with my leadership team, we we've gone through some exercises where we we're looking at. You know, planning for for twenty twenty four and what are some of the things that that we need to do as a commercial operations organization, and then going beyond that, really interesting exercise that you've been leading around, looking at each of our leadership roles, mine included, and as a team, determining what are the core competencies for the person who's in this role. So, taking my role for example, take me out of this role if I'm not in this role, and we're going to hire somebody into it. What are those core capabilities that that the person needs to have? Having that good discussion around that and aligning on, okay, what's most important for the person in this role to be successful? And then even more important than that is taking it to the next step, where we then have the feedback sessions where, you know, we have people who who know me and who know my work um, and what I how I operate on a daily basis. And you're able to share those core competencies, those critical competencies, and get feedback from the people around, okay, how is James doing in these areas? And for me, that's something that has been really, really valuable, especially as I'm working on my development plan as well, where I understand not only from my perspective where I think my gaps are, but when we look at the team and the the, the group that I'm leading, where do they think my gaps are and and what are the things that they think that I'm doing well that I I need to continue um so so personally as a leader that's something that that's really been invaluable for me uh to help shape my development is, is getting that really um objective feedback from the team and you know certainly need to to thank you for for leading those sessions and you know to thank my team as well because giving that that type of feedback about your manager or about your manager's manager um, you know they need to to have a, a trust in the process and they need to be open to doing that and i think as we saw some of the feedback that that was provided in the sessions the feedback that sessions that were held for me um, really insightful feedback and and really um, actionable items that i'm able to develop my plan to uh, to work on to be a, a better leader and a better employee
0: but, you know, it takes some courage, James, to put yourself in the front of the queue, you know, go first and role model that vulnerability. I think that's the powerful piece when I reflect on what I've seen you do with your group. And I've tried to encourage others to do the same because I think you're a real thought leader in this area. And a few other folks are like yourself, um, courageously putting themselves out there to get that real time feedback, right? you know, we we call it the 180 online, instead of waiting for a paper or electronically driven 360 that takes forever and tries to measure too many competencies and people are busy, they sort of garbage in, garbage out on the data that they enter into those things, both quantitatively and in the comments section. And I'm at the other end of this with my executive uh, clients trying to coach them and they say, hey, I got a 360 and that's, can we go through the report and see if we can find some helpful things in here and boy it's hard to find that needle in that haystack because it's a bit of a mess really i mean a lot of millennials who are at the receiving end of these surveys they don't want to sit there for 45 minutes and fill out 19 screens of questions and put in open comments just not going to do it they're too busy but the online if you create the right environment and create a trusting environment where the respondents can feel like okay i can speak clearly and plainly And the facilitator won't editorialize. They'll just make sure they understand the meaning. And then I can watch my receiver, my boss, or whoever is the person who's getting the feedback in real time. I can watch them get the feedback. So there's not this disconnect. Where did my feedback go into some HR vortex? No, no, there it is right now in real time. I get to watch it. And then I get to see how my candidate or my person that I'm giving feedback to is receiving it and the way they're responding to it. And then they're given the permission to come back and close the loop to say, okay, I have to unpack what's relevant and what's true, because even with 180 feedback in that environment, it is only a slice of, of the view of the world, right? It's not gospel truth. So I thought that that idea, which came to our attention during COVID, and like everybody else, we had to adapt to COVID, has really proven to be a powerful way for leaders to be self-aware, that it has to be set up properly, and it takes some courage. but I know you're benefiting from it. A few other people that have briefly put their hand up for that kind of assessment have had the same experience you've had. It's been extremely specific and helpful and pragmatic. It gives them something to really lean into when they're thinking about, well, how do I continue to evolve and role model uh, what professional development should look like? So thank you for doing that. And it's been interesting to watch now as it cascades through the organization so we'll we'll see where it takes us now what we do with every guest is if we haven't covered something you'd like to cover this is uh an opportunity is there anything you wanted to talk about with us this morning that we haven't had a chance to touch on
1: i think probably from my perspective i think we we've covered um you know a, a lot of ground here which is, has been really enjoyable talking to you you know maybe to to turn the tables as well and and ask you a question as well. I know that you've done a, a number of these podcasts. you've had the opportunity to to talk to a lot of different people as well. just curious as, as to whether or not at this point you've had an opportunity to to sit back and and think about those conversations and and determine whether any you know common themes came out or you know are there any insights you've been able to to pull from these these conversations that you'll be using in your your role as a coach and, and mentor or is it too soon um for you to have a had a had a chance to uh to go back and, and think about all these conversations
0: no it's not too soon in fact a really close friend we're like brothers from different mothers asked me that question when we finished recording his podcast uh it's a friend of mine named paul and uh he said so uh what are you learning as you go through this and you know, there's three things that already stand out to me. One is how powerful um, empathy is as a capability. I'm probably getting to the point where I've seen it enough now and now heard it enough on these interviews and in the podcast series that when people ask me the question, if there's a place that a skill that I could develop, if I want to take on particularly people leadership roles and flourish in those roles, what should I work on? And that's that's my answer now. Really try to develop your emotional intelligence, and your ability to be empathetic, because it goes to that expression. People don't care much, you know, until they know much, you care. And if you have that mindset that like you have, James, and you talked about that in our interview today, right, that you see yourself as that sort of human gardener, that's you really care about where people are in their careers and where they're going and trying to make sure that they optimize their skills. That to me is probably what defines the most successful leaders that we get to talk to. And I think the other thing that stands out is that maybe our old image of what leaders look and sound like uh, is changing and thank goodness for the better. Um, It's not the table banging sort of big personality. It's, it's the thoughtful, more introverted, perhaps, um, Socratic approach, like you mentioned today, people who push their folks that report to them and even the people who are lateral to them to think at higher levels. You know, like you even see it in, say, first line management, sales management, let's say in the pharmaceutical sector, is a classic example. The best sales leaders don't go out and sell for their people. Their best sales leaders go out, they focus on, well, what is this business person trying to get better at? Let's organize our day around that let's have one thing that I'm here to help them elevate their game to think and act at a higher level than when I got here so that when I'm not here, that I know that they're making progress and they're continuing to get better at that particular capability. Cause I've cared enough to a focus on it and B to push them almost like, you know, you, you see professional athletes will hire like a skating coach. When I was coaching uh, special Olympics, in Newmarket, one day we saw a very high-profile NHL player out on the ice by himself with a skating coach, going through very careful, you know, turns how to get the edges out of out of the best edges out of his skating technique. And it was really interesting to watch that and think, yeah, there's a guy making millions of dollars a year who, in the off season, is really trying to focus on those fundamentals one at a time. And I find that that's what tends to work, James. As you think about people who are you know joining us for these podcasts and reflecting back on their career and what they're most proud of a lot of them talk like you did today about probably being most proud of not so much a brilliant idea but developing human potential and the royal road to that seems to be empathy and focus so that's been a big takeaway for us and I just also have appreciated that especially in the life science sector if you don't have a strong value of compassion and other orientation, you're probably in the wrong place. Like you have to, I think I've recognized that like you and many of our other guests that are flourishing in this, in this sector in life science, you wake up in the morning thinking, how can I help people? Right? Like you, you and other folks have mentioned quite a number of folks that at one point, maybe considering on their career path, being a physician or a nurse or a, practitioner, and then pivoting to other aspects of the career, but continuing to have that core value around, hey, I get up in the bed, and I'm out of bed in the morning, and I really want to make sure that at the end of the day, I've helped someone. And I think that's a defining value that runs through our listeners or our guests so far to this point. So that's a great question. You always have great questions, but those are probably the things that right now seem
1: pretty obvious. Interesting, uh, interesting insights. Thank you for sharing. Oh, you're welcome.
0: Well, thanks for joining us today. We really enjoyed that, and I, I I was keen to talk to you because of your unusual career path and the bold moves you've made. And what I see in my travels uh, is that people like you are flourishing even as they get further into their career. Because I think the key is never stop learning, right? And um, you're certainly a great example of that. And uh, that's something I've seen as you and I've had a chance to work together for a number of years. Is just a huge appetite for yourself to not get complacent and continue to push yourself to be, you know, bigger, faster, and stronger, no matter where you go. So thanks for sharing your example with everybody. And we hope to get a chance to talk to you soon.
1: Great. Well, thanks for having me. And and congratulations on your 20 year milestone with Thrive.
0: Yeah, that's a big deal. Hopefully I got another 20 left in me. We'll see. (laughs)
1: Let's hope. Take care, Rob. All
0: right. Thanks, James.
1: Appreciate your time.
0: Bye-bye.